0: Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The Doctrine of Christ, part three. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.
1: In our study of the Incarnation, we've been looking at two competing schools of Christological thought among the church fathers. First, the Alexandrian school, which held to a one nature Christology or monophysitism, one nature uh, having divine and human elements in Christ, and on the other hand the Antiochian school of Christology which held to a diophysite view of Christ, that Christ had two natures, one human and one divine. Now, the Antiochian Diophysite view of Christology implied that Christ had two complete natures human and divine, that Christ possessed all of the properties which are essential to a complete human nature, including both a rational soul and a human body. One of the most uh, prominent of the Antiochian uh, theologians was Theodore of Mopsuestia who was the author of a treatise on the Incarnation called On the Incarnation. And In this work Theodore thinks of the Incarnation as a very special form of indwelling uh, on the part of The Logos. By means of this indwelling, the Logos, or the second person of the Trinity, attached himself to the man, Jesus, at the moment of conception in Mary's womb. Now, because God is omnipresent and provident over everything that happens in history, Theodore says that God is present in his essence to all things, both in their existence and in their operation. But by his good pleasure he chooses to be more intimately related to some things than to others. So, While God is essentially um, present in uh, the existence and operation of everything, he is specially present in Christ according to his good pleasure. In Christ, God was pleased to dwell as in a son. Theodore affirmed that there is only one person in Christ. But he also held at the same time that both of his natures, the human nature and the divine nature, are complete, and moreover, that each nature has its own peculiar hypostasis or property-bearer or thing that bears that nature, the human nature or the divine nature. Moreover, he thought of the union of the Logos with the man Jesus in terms of a functional unity of love and will. Um, The way in which the Logos and the man Jesus were one uh, was a functional unity of mutual love and uh, harmonious will. So the person that they constitute um, seems to be a person just in a sort of functionally unified sense of presenting a common face or, as he put it, prosopon. This was the word that was used in the Greek theatre for the mask that an actor would wear, uh, it seemed that the prosopon or the the person that they presented to us was simply a kind of functionally unified um, face uh, in virtue of their harmonious will and um, mutual love. And So, as you can imagine, Uh, Theodore's affirmation that there is only one person in Christ was viewed with suspicion by his detractors. If each nature has its own hypostasis and is a person merely in this sort of functional sense then it seems that he doesn't really believe that there is just one person uh, in Christ. But it wasn't Theodore that really came under uh, attack for positing uh, two persons in Christ. Rather the person most often associated with this view is Nestorius who was the patriarch of the city of Constantinople in 428. Nestorius affirmed that in Christ there are two complete natures. and Nestorius especially objected to Mary's being referred to as Theotokos, which means the bearer or mother of God. Mary in Christian piety was referred to as Theotokos, the mother of God, or the bearer of God, since she bore Christ. And Nestorius objected to this sort of language with regard to Mary. He said, Mary. Bore only the man Jesus. He, she did not bear the divine logos. Mary is not the mother of the logos. She simply the mother of the man Jesus, who was united with the logos in the incarnation. So, what was formed or conceived in Mary's womb, uh, grew up, was crucified, uh, buried, was not God. Rather, it was this man, Jesus. But he is called God because of the divinity of the one who assumed him as his human nature, namely the Logos. Um, and so the Alexandrian theologians believed that despite his protestations to the contrary, Nestorius' uh, view really was committed to the position that there are in Christ two persons two sons, one human and one divine. and I think it is very easy to see why these Alexandrian theologians thought that Nestorius was committed to such a position even though he claimed that he did not believe in two persons or sons. If each of Christ's natures is complete, each one has its own complete set of rational faculties then it's difficult to see why you wouldn't have two persons or two sons in Christ. Now, the Alexandrian theologians by this time had to admit the existence of a human soul in Christ because Apollinarius had already been condemned uh, for denying that. Um, and they couldn't explain the solution to the dilemma of how you could have both a human soul and body and the divine mind without having two persons. But they were certain that the Bible does not teach that there are two sons. There is only one Son of God, only one person. So Cyril of Alexandria, who was an Alexandrian theologian, wrote the following. When he was made flesh, we do not define the indwelling in him in precisely the same manner as that in which one speaks of an indwelling in the saints. So The Logos' indwelling Christ is not like the indwelling that you and I experience when the Holy Spirit indwells us. Cyril says, But being united by nature and not changed into flesh, he effected such an indwelling as the soul of man might be said to have in its own body. So, Cyril thinks of the indwelling of the Logos in Christ as on the analogy of the way in which your soul indwells your body. And I think the problem with this analogy is very apparent. It either supports Apollinarianism, which says that. Um, Christ didn't have a human soul but the Logos was the soul of Christ. The Logos took the place of the soul of Christ uh, and so has the same relation to Jesus' body that your soul has to your body. Or else, um, if that is not correct, then it supports Nestorianism, namely um, the Son assumes a whole person who has both a soul and a body so that you wind up with two persons. So, Cyril couldn't really explain uh, how you can have two complete natures in Christ um, without having two persons. Well, Nestorianism was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Uh, and the real problem with Nestorianism was that it couldn't really posit a genuine union of God and man in Christ. Um, At best it was a sort of indwelling of God in the man, Jesus. Uh, and That's just a kind of ontological juxtaposition of divinity and humanity and not really a genuine union of divinity and humanity in Christ. But if having a complete human nature uh, involved having a human personality and self-consciousness, then it seems very, very difficult given the rejection of Apollinarianism to affirm two natures in Christ without um, lapsing into Nestorianism. So the church had condemned both Apollinarianism and Nestorianism by this time. and The difficulty was how in the world do you chart a path forward given these condemnations. Any discussion then about Nestorianism, either what it held or why the church condemned it?
0: Yeah, so um, I hope I didn't just miss this, but um, trying to understand a little bit, how is that different from, it really sounds just like Apollinarianism, the idea that, isn't he saying that Jesus has a divine soul but not a... Now, whom are you talking about? Nestorius?
1: Yes, the, the one story. we were just
0: talking about, right? How is that different again from Apollinarius's view? Like,
1: Apollinarius, not- you remember, denied that Christ has a human soul. Okay. He said that in Christ the soul was replaced by the logos, the second person of the Trinity. Okay. So he had a human body, he had a human uh, animal soul. The the that animated the body, but he didn't have a noose or a mind. He didn't have a human mind. Okay. The Logos was the mind of okay. the incarnate Christ. Nestorius, on the other hand, uh, believed um, that the Logos did not simply assume flesh. He he did not simply clothe himself with a, an animate human body. Rather, he had a human mind or soul as well. So. Think of the man Jesus being conceived in Mary's womb, with both a body and a soul that are purely and merely human, and somehow the logos takes that man and makes him his own. He assumes that man in an incarnation through some sort of special indwelling or, or some sort of union. That would be more than a story. In view, is that? Clear that difference? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, now there's some comments back here in the rear.
0: Yeah, I wonder if the problem arises from like a definitional standpoint in terms of like defining a man as having a body, a soul, and a mind. If you say that that is like the complete totality of a man, then you would naturally run into this problem when you want to have a man and God in one body. So I wonder what their definition of a soul is because it seems that some of them are trying to insert God in that place of a soul, but then you contradict those that would say that you need the soul of a man to have that man combination.
1: Yes, I do think that it does tend to hinge on your view of human anthropology, what makes someone a human person. and The idea of a soul here is a rational soul or a mind. That's the idea, that in Christ there was a human mind, uh, a rational mind, as well as the logos. Um, So the question is how do you affirm both of those things without having two persons, one the human person, Jesus, and the other the divine person, the logos? That's the problem.
0: Rob? In the Nestorian view, and you may have said it, did they believe in the virgin birth, or was that unnecessary? Oh no, they, he
1: did believe in the virgin birth, um, but what he thought was conceived in Mary's womb was the man Jesus. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, she miraculously conceived this man, Jesus. Now, of course, when I say man, I mean human being. I don't mean he was an adult, but she, she conceived this human being. Who grew up to become Jesus of Nazareth? Um, so this was miraculous—a virgin birth. But you can see on Nestorius's view why he objected to saying Mary is the mother of God, because he thought the the individual she gave birth to and bore and conceived was this man, or this human person, Jesus. She didn't give birth to or or uh, Conceived the logos, and so that was why he objected to this language of the Mother of God. Uh, let's take Bruce's question.
0: He gave me the microphone. So. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> Good thing I Preemptive,
0: preemptively. Yes. It was predestined, you see. But, uh, anyway, uh, it, for me, I don't know if you're going to go into this, but you know, the problem goes away if you if you're a trichotomist, because then you know the spirit of. The the Logos is the Spirit of Christ, and then the soul is the man that's volition, cognition, and emotion. Um, So,
1: well, now, Bruce, it seems to me that what you're saying is just Apollinarianism, because Apollinarius was a trichotomist with respect to human nature. Remember, he said human nature is composed of a body, a soul, and a mind. Now, you could call one of those elements the spirit instead. But if that's part of what it is to be a human being, then if the logos replaced that part, mm-hmm. then that's basically Apollinarianism. Um, you're saying there's a part of that human being that was replaced by the logos.
0: Yeah, but it, it still makes a, a, a three-part human being as well. Well, as, that's the question, yeah, yeah. does
1: it? Um, does it? I, I, I,
0: a unique three-part human being, but it's not <laughs> unlike when we become believers. You know, uh, Proverbs says our spirit is, is God's candle, you know. Is God's uh, what? Is God's candle in, in Proverbs. Right, but is now there... you
1: and I don't have a divine part
0: No, in but our, that, but our, spi- our
1: human makeup. We have a human spirit or mind or soul or something, but it's not like we are God incarnate.
0: There's no, but we have different. a spiritual, I'd say the spirit is a spiritual essence that's uh, different than what we would call the soul, which, which I you would know, say would be mind, I body, understand, I, but know? again,
1: to repeat, yeah. whatever you call this third element, yeah. if it's not there, but is replaced by the logos, then you've got Apollinarianism, and you've got the objections to it then to consider and, and show why those objections don't go through. Okay, Eric,
0: um, under under Nestorius' view, would Jesus have
1: had two distinct consciousnesses, a human and a divine, almost like some sort of multiple personality? That seems to be the implication, doesn't it? That on Nestorianism, um, Christ had two minds. One would be the human mind, which began like an infant in Mary's uh, womb. And and then grew in wisdom, as Luke says, as well as stature, was a boy and grew up um, and was limited in knowledge. Uh, yes, that, that seems to be right. This is, is a sort of different mind than the mind of the Lagos, which is omniscient at all times. And so the question would be, how can you have that and not have two persons? Because the Nestorians did not want to say there are two persons.
0: Did Apollinarius uh, ever address the emptying of himself? of Christ? And, and, and what does that imply? The Did who addressed this? Apollinarius?
1: I don't know. All we have from Apollinarius, Steve, are fragments of his work, which I have read. And in these fragments, I don't remember that he addressed this question that's raised in Philippians where it says, Christ emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. So he may well have a Appeal to that, but i i don 't know i don 't think that we 've got enough writings from him extant. Most of what we know about him would be from secondary sources attacking that position yes, taiwan
2: um, according to Bill Gother uh, the human has three parts: mm-hmm. spirit, soul, and body mm-hmm. and In God's design, spirit, uh, and God is spirit, so that part of us communicates with him, and the soul, uh, comprised of mind, emotion, and will, carries that into our physical activities, the body carries out. And that is supposed to be the design, but since human... uh, uh, fo- fallen of the man um, the spirit died so the soul uh, try to capture the body uh, stimulus and try to make a person come alive so it it's Instead of spirit, the priority of spirit feed body, it's body-fed and kind of pseudo-spirit kind of. Um, and so uh, it's, it's a matter of priority. Since Christ's spirit is perfectly linked with God, so he has this spirit-fed body where we yeah. don't. We have body-fed Kind of pseudo spirit. Yeah. And so it's, it's almost just a reverse of the priority uh, in what dominates a yes. person's. Uh, now, I, I don't want to dispute
1: your view of humanity, but I think you're raising the same point that Bruce was just a moment ago. And that is if this spirit, whatever that is, is essential to being a human being then if Christ didn't have it you've got Apollinarianism. If the logos replaced the spirit then there is some essential component of human nature that Christ didn't have. If you say, on the other hand, well, this isn't really essential to being a human being to have this spirit. What is essential is just the soul and the body. Then it seems to me you've you've got Nestorianism uh, because you've got then a human being who has a mind, As well as a body and is fully conscious. And the question would be, well, why isn't this then another person? So I hope that you can see the problem here. I'm not trying to resolve the problem, I'm not trying to dispute your anthropology, but just to help you to see the conundrum that Christians face in trying to understand how Christ could have two complete natures, and yet there not be two persons. I don't want to take the same person again, so let me go to Ben here um, to give each some each person a chance to ask a question. I think this is relevant to what uh, we're talking about. Uh, do these people or any of these um, theologies believe that Christ became human or brought, took on a human form for the first time when When Mary actually conceived, or did they have any concept of uh, theophanies at this point? Like Mm. a lot of people today believe that Christ, or the the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Son of God, came to earth and talked, walked, ate like in human form several times in the Old Testament. Um, And so I was curious how that worked with any of these. Okay, interesting question. Let me say a couple of things. I would say that these... Theologians would affirm with Orthodox Christianity that there is only one God incarnate, and that's Jesus. So these prior appearances of God in human form in these theophanies were just that. They were mere appearances. They weren't genuine incarnations. That didn't take place until the conception in Mary's womb. Now, interestingly enough, Apollinarius did generate some controversy by thinking that somehow the human nature of Christ was already included in divinity. That somehow the Logos already was the sort of archetypal man and so in that sense humanity was included in the Logos already. and I will say something more about that later on because I think that is a promising direction to pursue. But that's a good question. Just tag on a little tiny thing on on top of that. Do we believe, or do you believe that in these Theophanies he probably knew what his body would look like later and took on that same body, or is that just something there's no I way we could? I think that's know. purely conjectural, okay. Ben, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, i yeah. I don't think there's any way to to know something like that, Dennis.
0: Yes, <clears throat> I think that the nature of this uh, discussion they were having shows that the early church was committed to Trinitarianism, because you know, despite the difficulties, it doesn't seem like anybody was trying to go the Unitarian route, Were right. they challenged by Unitarians or no, no, you're quite gone? right, Dennis. Remember, we
1: surveyed in our discussion of the Trinity the Trinitarian controversies of the second or the third and fourth centuries. And then these were followed by these Christological controversies. But for all parties here, they assumed the truth of the Nicene Creed, which had been promulgated in 325, and said that Christ is fully God. So, right, this is common ground Trinitarian theology that then needed to be uh, sorted out as to how the second person of the Trinity related to his human nature. Now let me conclude our lesson today by um, quoting from the Council of Chalcedon which was convened in the year 451 by the Emperor uh, at the request of the Pope Leo the Great in order to settle this controversy between Antioch and Alexandria. And the statement of the Council of Chalcedon, which is printed in your notes so that you can read along, uh, carefully charts a middle course between Antioch and Alexandria. And I want to conclude by simply quoting from the Chalcedonian settlement um, before we next time look at it in detail. This is what the, the Council declared We confess, one, And the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial, that is, homoousios, with the Father according to the Godhead. And consubstantial, homoousios, with us according to the manhood, like us in all things except sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, Theotokos, according to the manhood one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, Only Begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the difference of the natures being by no means taken away because of the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved And concurring in one person, prosopon, and one subsistence, hypostasis, not divided or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, this statement is a profound (laughs) theological statement. And next time we meet, we'll want to examine it in detail to see the safe channel for Christological speculation that the Council sought to establish for the Church. But now, let's conclude with a word of prayer. Father, as we approach now the uh, Christmas holiday, we ask that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, praise, and thanksgiving for your tremendous grace in the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that our deportment this week, our conversation, thoughts would be honoring and pleasing to you full of praise and thanks through Jesus Christ our Lord.
0: Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.